Hello, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving to you all. You know, you're all looking so thankful. I was going to say so well fed, but some of you might take offense at that. You're looking so well fed. It's, it's great to be here. I hope you enjoyed a great day of feasting. I love Thanksgiving. You know, it's, uh, I see it now as, you know, the, the scriptures talk about the promised land being a land of flowing with milk and honey. For me, it's like a day flowing with eggnog and pecan pie, and I love both. So thank you, America, for this wonderful holiday. It's time to open up God's Word and, and to feast on His Word also, which the Scriptures also describes as sweet too, sweet to our soul, sweet to our inner being. And it's, it's crucial that we gather around God's Word regularly. It's, it's what society is failing to do, and yet it's so nourishing. It's so medicinal, right? It's curative. It straightens us out. Society could do with a, a good dose of the Word of God, and its absence is why we're at where we're at. Society begins to unravel when God's Word is ignored. I, I'm reading through the, the, first, the books of First and Second Kings at the minute, and that theme is clear there. When, when God's people ignore God's Word, society crumbles. And you don't have to just look at the Scriptures. Look, look, read history, right? Open your eyes and look around you. And so it's good to gather around God's Word. And in 1983, uh, the Templeton Prize, which is a very prestigious award, was given to a guy called Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's a, he's a Christian writer from yesteryear. He was a survivor of the, the Soviet Union's uh, forced labor camps. Just brutal what, what the Soviet Union did to its people. And this man got this award and, and he was giving a speech, an address, and, and in that address, he was explaining how we got to that situation where in that society, they killed 60 million of their own people. And he says it comes down to one simple fact that I've observed, and I quote what he says, and it's this, that men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. Mankind has forgotten God. When, when man forgets God, man isn't neutral. Man isn't just in, in, intuitively and inherently kind and, and generous and selfless. When man forgets God, man is brutal. Man is wicked. Man is violent. Man is selfish. Man, as Paul says in Romans 1, invents ways to do evil. Forgetting God begins by ignoring His Word and not sitting regularly in submission to what God has said for the flourishing of society. Well, today we sit under God's Word because we're Christians and that's what Christians do. We remember God. We remember what He has said in His Word. So please turn to John chapter 17. The Gospel of John chapter 17 uh, where we encounter a prayer and this isn't just any prayer. This is the greatest prayer that has ever been raised on earth toward the throne room of heaven. This is a conversation that we're eavesdropping in between God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Father. On the eve of the most unjust and brutal assassination, the cross of Christ. 
on the eve before the Lord Jesus Christ goes to the cross, he prays. He pours himself out in prayer. It's interesting what he prays for. You know, I have a lot to learn about prayer, apparently, according to my five-year-old. I was lying beside him a few weeks back as we were going through our nighttime routine, and it came to the time to pray. And so I started to pray. And within seconds, I heard this gasp. See, I had been slow to close my eyes as I began to pray. And so my son, who's five, said, dad, 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 when you pray, you gotta close your eyes. I mean, if you want it to count, you gotta close your eyes. So I thought, all right, yeah, let's, 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 let's go with that. Uh, so I continued. Now I think sort of officially praying. And there was another gasp. And I said, well, what now? He said, dad, when you pray, you gotta close your eyes and Clasp your hands. So I did, and now I was officially, legally in the presence of Almighty God in his throne room, talking to him about our day. And, and when the prayer ended, uh, James was very quick to, to explain what had happened. He said this, Dad, you close your eyes to pray for it to count. But, but if you don't put your hands together when you close your eyes, God thinks you're just sleeping. <laughs> That's just sleeping. <laughs> So I, I have a lot to learn about prayer, and I submit that you might too. And listening in to Jesus' prayer teaches us a lot, reveals to us a lot about what he's about, what's important to him, what he values, and models for us what we should be about, what we should value, what we should set our lives toward. Prayers are very revealing. You want to know where you're at with God? Listen to your own prayers. They, they, they honestly articulate the desires of your heart, what you're aligning your life toward. And so John 17 covers a lot of ground, but, but one of the stuff that's there is Jesus' prayer, of course. And, and the question that emerges is this, what does Jesus pray for? What does Jesus talk to God about? What does Jesus pray for? It's a great question. And if he prays for that, what then? How then shall I live? So before we go into what's there, there's, there, I believe there's about six prayer points in, in John 17's prayer. Now, I only have time to go through three, and I've selected the three that I'm going to go through. If you invite me back some other day, we might get to the other three. So, so we're going to go through three of the six. But before I do that, I want to orient you a little bit to, to what's going on there. Just a few things to remember as you enter into that chapter. And the first thing is that, is simply this, that Jesus in John 17 is praying for you. Maybe you didn't pick up on how remarkable a thought that is that Jesus prays for you. I mean, I pray to God and God the Son prays for me. That's remarkable. What a lovely thought. Now, the, the, the flow of the chapter is he prays for himself. He prays for the 11 disciples because Judas is out of there a few hours earlier. And then he prays for all who would believe through the testimony of the word of the disciples, which is us. But in verse 20, it's quite clear, and you don't have to turn there, track it down at some other point. In verse 20, it's quite clear that the prayer is all-encompassing 
for everyone who would be called a son or a daughter of God. It's a prayer for all of us. Jesus prays for you that night, that momentous event. The second thing I want you to see before we go into these three prayer points is that this is the most significant time, moment in human history. At the very start of the prayer, Jesus raises his eyes to heaven. He says, Father, the hour has come. It's like a a notification has gone off on Jesus' smartwatch. And it's set to God's calendar. And it's telling us that what's about to be accomplished that evening, into the night, that next day, and into that weekend is the most significant moment in human history. Now, there's been lots of significant moments on history's clock. Discovery of fire. Think about it when you go home. Not now, I don't have time for us to pause. Discovery of fire is great. You can cook, you can keep warm. Discovery of the wheel. Discovery of, of, of writing and reading to pass on information. Penicillin. I mean, that's a wonderful discovery. The formation of Texas. What a historic moment, right, in, in history's clock. But, but, but on God's clock, all R's have been ticking to one, toward one R. And all R's look back and have ticked since that R, and it's the R that's about to accomplish, be accomplished that weekend. I want you to understand that we're entering into the most momentous moment in all of human history. The story of humanity with or without God emerges out of this weekend. Now, all that said, that this is a prayer for you and this is a prayer that occurs for you at the most important moment in all of human history according to God's schedule, let's look at those three prayers. And the first one is this, that Jesus prays for the glory of God. That's what Jesus prays for. Jesus prays for the glory of God. Jesus prays for God's reputation. What's of concern to Jesus Christ is the reputation of God. How he looks in the world. Look at verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, that's looking back at the previous chapters, which we've been in in this series. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. If you glance down at verses four and five, he picks that up again. I, Jesus speaking, have glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus' concern is for the glory of God. He prays for that. Now, now we hear the, the, the Christian buzz phrase, the glory of God, quite a lot. We sing about the glory of God, but what does it mean? What does the glory of God mean? Well, at a very basic level, the word glory is rooted in the word for weightiness, heaviness, bulkiness, to be of substance. And you can understand how that literal root level meaning of the word is then applied to someone of importance. 
To be of substance means that you're of substance and status, that you're important. And of course, when it's applied to God, it speaks of his unmatched supremacy, his, his, his unrivaled status, his, his unequaled reputation, his heavyweightness. There's no one like him. There's no one like him. We don't give God glory in the sense that he lacks it and only gets it if we provide it. God is glorious, whether you acknowledge it or not. God is witty. God is supreme, whether you recognize it or not. He doesn't need creation to grant him glory. He is glorious. But when, a, when my dog wags its tail, as, as God designed that for dogs to do, God gets glory. And, and, and when, I don't know, a, a, a magnificent tree sways and moves its branches in the wind as God designed it, God gets glory. And when a butterfly flutters around the place, as God designed it, God gets glory. And when my taste buds sing for joy at the pleasure of, I don't know, Thanksgiving eggnog and pecan pie, God gets glory. All that creation is doing is acknowledging the greatness, the supremacy of God when it functions as he designed it to function and they experience what he designed it to experience. God is glorious and we get to recognize and proclaim that. So when you, the only creature in all of creation that has been created to look like God, and is the only creature in all creation that has the capacity to proclaim the heaviness, the weightness of God. When you live your life God's way, he gets glory. Glory of God is proclaimed. If you glance back down at verse four there, it's also in your sermon notes. Uh, Jesus presents us what I believe to be his motto in, in life his motto in his earthly life. A motto is a phrase, right? A sentence that captures a, a guiding principle that's gonna guide your life. Verse four is, is Jesus' motto in life. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Jesus' motto in, on earth was to, to, to make God look good through the way he lived his life, through what he taught, through the miracles that he performed, through his suffering service, through his saving the world the next day. Verse five, he talks about his pre-earth existence glory, his unveiled glory, because Jesus is the son of God. It's wonderful, we've no time to get into the details of that, but what Jesus is essentially saying is the time has come for Jesus to fulfill his motto in life and his motto in life is to glorify God and that includes the cross. See, the cross is about God. The cross is about God getting the glory that he deserves. It's, 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 it's about God receiving an acknowledgement that he is supreme and that he has been offended by your sin. And as Jesus Christ goes to the cross to make sure that sin is paid for because God has been offended, 
one of the beautiful, remarkable offshoots of that is that you are redeemed. You get bought back. The, a, a, a door is opened up for us to be able to have life with a glorious God because God has dealt with our offense. The cross is about the glory of God. The redemption of humanity is but a means to proclaiming the glory of God, that he has been offended and that's not right. God beautifully provides a, a way of justly dealing with sin that justifies the sinner. That's Paul in Romans 3. Great theology that he brings out there. So by way of application, friends, here's, here's what I'd like you to, to think about and take into this week. That if Jesus' motto was to bring glory to God on earth, why don't you make Christ's life motto your life motto? John 17 verse 4 should be your life verse. Make it your life verse. Make Christ's life motto your life motto. Make it what guides tomorrow morning. I, it, it's doable. I, I was reading recently a story by a pastor from yesteryear. And it really grabbed me. It really challenged me. This chap in the early 1900s, he talks about going on a pastoral visit to a, to a few homes. And one of the homes he went to, uh, this was in a town that he didn't pastor. He was a guest speaker. And the local pastor of the church took him on a pastoral visit. And he went to this home and it was in a back alley like a back street, and he climbed up these stairs and he went into a little room and there was an elderly lady sitting there, an old lady. And uh, with her was her 32-year-old daughter. And the 32-year-old daughter was in a child's high chair. 22 years ago, when she was 10, she developed some sort of paralysis. Uh, and she was physically incapacitated. She was mentally there, but physically incapacitated. And she'd sat in a high chair for 22 years. And a little high chair was sort of pushed towards the, the window where she could look over just a back alley, a back street. There was a little desk there. And she spent her days, day in and day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, writing letters to people all over the world who were hurting to minister to them. And she said to, to the pastor, I believe that God gets more glory out of my being here in this chair than he would if I could run around the place. I am content to be here to glorify God. What an attitude. See, you and I can run around but make sure that in our running around, we make God look good. Make Christ's life motto your life motto. Glorify God with the way you live your life. And nothing glorifies God more from a human creature than obedience. It's as simple as that. Obey. Obey what he has said. So Jesus firstly prays for the glory of God. Secondly, Jesus prays for the eternal life of believers. The eternal life of believers. His concern is for God's reputation and his concern is for your salvation. That's remarkable. Look at verse two. 
Verse two says, since you have given him, that is Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. One writer refers to this verse as the great New Testament definition of eternal life. He's right. Eternal life, the essence of eternal life is a personal, forever encounter with a supreme God. To experience him intimately as you experience other relationships, to know him and to be known by him to experience him intimately in in an up-close, not-distance, meaningful relationship. Now, I'll be honest with you. I, you know, for a long, long time, full disclosure here, I wasn't very excited about eternal life. I grew up in the church, and I wanted it because the opposite, the alternative, was eternal burning, right? And I was like, I don't want that. I guess I'm going to go this way, and Everybody's talking about how it's going to be so much fun, but you've got to understand in my little childlike mind, my least favorite time of the week, school excluded, that is a given, right, for a kid, school. My least favorite time of the week was church. Sunday morning church. Now, back then, uh, kids were in big church, and it was so boring. I mean, all that the adults wanted to do was sing and stand, and sing some more, and then listen to a preacher. And and I just assumed that eternal life was going to be one big, long, boring church service. But we floated around somewhere singing, and I, I wasn't very excited about that. I'm not very musical. Eternal life seems so boring. One of a series of events in my young life began to change that. And one that stands out was one of the first funerals I ever remember attending. I was sort of aware of it. I wasn't front row. But dad was a pastor. And it was a funeral of another kid. And I I remember uh, a huge ache, pain in my heart. It was sore. I never felt like that before. This is real. He's not coming back. He's not getting up. This wasn't right. The kid was the son of a prisoner. My dad had a prison ministry. And he had lots, this man, this prisoner had lots of kids. And we lived in a really poor area of Spain. That's where my parents planted this church. And this guy's kids just played in the street and a car had hit his son. And dad went in and he begged with the prison governor that he would allow this prisoner to get out of prison just to attend his son's funeral, which he did. He walked behind his kid's coffin in handcuffs as all his other kids clung to him. I remember thinking, that's not right. That's not right. 
But there was a turn in my little heart that began to go, ah, oh, Jesus came to fix that. Jesus came to stop that. Jesus came to change that. I remember crying into my pillow that night, clinging to God, wanting more of him. Thanking him for sending Jesus to change that so that that wouldn't be eternity. So that eternity wouldn't be that. Brokenness and pain. A man handcuffed behind his kid's coffin. I remember thinking, I want you. I want more of you. I want to know you. I want your presence. It, it's, like the, it's like the sweetness of the gospel began to just surge, swell up in my being. There's more to life than that. Friends, Jesus prays for your eternal life. Eternal life is not another big, long church service listening to a preacher talk. The irony of it, right? It's being with him. No more goodbyes, no more heartaches, no more anxiety, no more loneliness, no more headaches, no more heartaches, no more cancer, no more 22 years of a lady sitting in a high chair, no more man walking behind his kid's coffin handcuffed, done, fixed, changed. And instead, life, life as it was always supposed to be, the life that you yearn for without all the bad stuff is our future because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he prays for that. You know, it's so indescribable that I just punt to what the Apostle Paul does. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, referring to our future, I has not seen, ear has not heard, nor the heart of man has been able to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. It's gonna be brilliant. So Jesus prays for the glory of God and Jesus prays for your eternal life. And so by way of application, I would just say this, set your life on knowing God. Set your life on knowing God. Set your life today and tomorrow and the next day in, in knowing God. Make time to be with him. Align your life so that you increasingly enter into a growing relationship with God, he's available to you. As a believer, of course, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never received Jesus' forgiveness by faith, and this is a wonderful opportunity for you to begin to set your life to knowing God, he's available to you. What you need to know, and I don't shy away from saying this, is that if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your life offends God. He's a holy God. And your life offends God. But he's done everything that he possibly can to grant that eternal life to you too. So receive it. Believe in your heart, sitting right there. I'm gonna talk on, and the rest of you are gonna listen on. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you have my permission to sit there and just chew on that. To get right with God. To cry out to him and say, I want that eternal life. 
So Jesus prays for the glory of God and Jesus prays for the eternal life of his own. It's only his own who get eternal life. And thirdly, lastly, uh, this morning, Jesus prays for the work of the word in believers. The work of the word in believers. Look at verse 17. This is a prayer not for your salvation, but for your sanctification. And I'll explain that in a little second. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, to sanctify, it just means this, to be set apart. To be set apart. To be kept apart for special use. Uh, every time I think of sanctify, I go to this incident that happened in our family and I share it with you. My mom, years ago, bought a box of expensive crackers. Now, you know what a cracker is? I don't know what you do know about what we have and I don't always remember if what we have is what you have, but think of a Ritz cracker. It's not, it's not a cookie, but it's sort of a dry, savory biscuit. But think of the most fancy type of Christmas cracker that you have. The, the stuff that you have with nice Irish sharp cheddar cheese and a nice cup of tea. And my mom had bought this box, a tin really. This is how costly and how fancy they were. A tin of Christmas crackers. And she had set them apart for a special use. And the special use was she was going to give these as a gift, a Christmas gift to one of her best pals. Uh, one day we were sitting in the living room. I'm one of seven. I'm, we were a large family. And my brother, the eldest, had been in the kitchen. And he'd been looking around the cupboards and he came in and he said, Mom, where is that box of really nice crackers? I can't find them. And Mom said, well, I set them apart. I set them apart because they're a gift. In fact, I gave them as a Christmas present to my dear friend, and she named the friend, um, as, a, as a thank you. Now, at that point, my brother's face dropped. And he said, Mom, I'd opened that box of crackers, and I'd eaten half of the crackers that were in that box of crackers. Now, at that point, my mom's face dropped. And all of us started to roll around the ground laughing, right? At the thought of this woman unwrapping a Christmas present, a, a box of fancy crackers only to see crumbs and half of them gone. To set apart, to sanctify, is to make something special for a special use, for a special purpose. It is God's will that his people be sanctified, be set apart. Not just be set apart and distant from the world, but be set apart for his use, for his special use. Now, the Bible is clear that that's God's will for every believer, that to be set apart in this generation, in any generation, to represent him, his supremacy, his glory in the world. That means that we have to be different from society, not the same. We don't talk like them, we don't speak like them, we don't dress like them, we don't vacation like them, we don't party like them, we don't work like them, we don't fight like them, we don't lie like them, we don't cheat like them, we don't covet like them, we're not greedy like them. We're different. We, we transact differently in life. We're set apart for God's use. Now, I'm getting somewhere. 
the major tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to sanctify your life is to wash you in the Word of God. To wash you in the Word of God. But good research and statistics tell us that Christians aren't really in the Word of God anymore. 40% of believers read the Bible once a month or less. Only 20% of believers are actually sitting under the Word of God. That is, not cherry-picking verses that they want to put on God's lips as a promise to bless your life, but actually submitting to whatever the Word of God wants to do with that individual. How are we going to be set apart for God's use if we're not in the very word that he uses to, use, to do a work in our lives to set us apart? We can, we can be mad all day long at, at how society has forgotten God and is ignoring truth and mocks Christians. But the statistics and the research are embarrassing on us. And that has to change. And I'm not picking on any individual. I'm also to be subject to the word of God. In fact, this is what I call a nice, uh, kindly kick by the word of God, right? The, the word of God sometimes gives you a little, like a little kick, like straighten up. The Murphys need sanctified in God's word too. One of my sons, uh, how do I say this? He's, he's under several layers of discipline most of the time. I need, a, I need an assistant to keep track of what he's being disciplined for when that expires and the next one continues, right? So the other day we were having dinner and he was just being obnoxious and rude and I sent him away to think about the man he wants to become. About 10 minutes later I called him back and he came in whistling and with a swagger, like, like he was a gang leader. There's no remorse. There was no change. My son needs to be sanctified in the word of God. He is a Christian boy, but he needs straightened out. But so do I. I went from zero to 100 miles an hour in anger when I saw him waltzing in back into our kitchen table. I'm not talking righteous anger. I'm talking unrighteous anger. I lost it. I lost my temper, and I sinned. I know some of you might find this hard to believe, but Pastor Murphy also needs to be sanctified in the Word of God regularly. If I want to be set apart and to be of special use to God in my family and in my neighborhood and in my everyday living. John Bunyan was the author of the greatest, one of the greatest works ever penned it's still in print, translated into 200 languages, and I want to borrow what was said of him as an application for you. You know what was said of this man? That if you would cut him, he would bleed Scripture. If you'd cut him, he would bleed Scripture. And so my encouragement to you is that you bleed Scripture, that you sweat Scripture, that you ooze Scripture, that, that God's Word so runs through your veins and nourishes every organ in your body that if we were to cut you, you'd bleed truth, God's truth. Bleed Scripture, get into the Word of God. Societal change can occur, but it occurs downstream 
from Christians who believe scripture. So we can change society, but the work has to begin in each of you. Friends, our time is up. Remember, this great prayer reveals Jesus' heart, yes, but reveals Jesus' will for your life. Jesus wants you to be about making God look good, the glory of God. Jesus wants you to enjoy the blessing of eternal life beginning today. And Jesus wants to wash you, to set you apart. And it begins through being immersed in the word of God. Uh, Let me close in prayer. But before we do that, I need you all to clasp your hands (laughs) and close your eyes to make sure we do this right. Father, we thank you for your word. You've given it to us so that we would learn and know about you and life with you and how to represent you in the society into which you've called us to represent you. We feasted this morning and I pray that that feasting will have its effect this week. But we need your help in order to do that. And so I ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit that you would help us do that to your glory. Amen.